Oh yeah! You hear that, Laurinaitis? I'm a motherfucking star man! Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. Folks! Out there in the Aqua Nation, which is a phrase I just invented for the fuck of it, because I'm just in that type of mood of shenanigans and hilarity, welcome to Starman! A show that is recapping the worst-ranked matches by legendary uh, sports journalist, uh, Mr. Dave Meltzer. Yeah, because that's the list that I pulled. Uh, I should or should point out to the listening audience, though, that this show is not endorsed by or sponsored by or uh, it, it is not put on with the uh, agreement of Mr. Meltzer. All right, just putting that out there for the Aqua, for the for the Aqua Cave universe. Anywho, guys, I thank you so much for coming back for the latest edition of Starman. We last time started into the negative one and a half star rated matches. We covered three very different types of matches, and I got to tell you, it was a hell of a lot of fun. So we're back here for part two, and I'm telling you what, folks. Today, we are still in the negative one and a half star range. Uh, But if our opening contest, just to use the first one that popped into my head, is any example, this journey may get harder as we go along and indeed test our patience and our sanity. But this is a show that's designed to have a lot of fun at the expense of these matches, but... Just to put my serious hat on, as I do sometimes here in the Aqua Cave, uh, you know, it's a serious evaluation of whether or not these matches deliver on the star ranking that was delivered by Dave. All right. So what we do here, just to make it nice, clear, and concise, as my junior English teacher always said to do when writing your thesis statement, we take the worst ranked matches on Meltzer's list. We try them in a court of entertainment one at a time. Meaning that I will all I will be both prosecutor and defense leading us through the evidence that I have collected from watching this match. Now, the evidence is collected to illustrate one of two points, either a positive or a negative. And with that being said, it's very straightforward. Uh, I use the evidence gathered from watching the match only, okay? So just to give an example that might seem a little silly, uh, if it just so happens that the next match on the docket is uh, Zeus versus Hulk Hogan, and I happen to be a major Hulk Hogan fan and a major Zeus fan, I will not give them the benefit of the doubt. Like any jury out there in a fair and balanced world, I will take into consideration only the evidence that is gathered from watching the match in question. Uh, I give you my absolute promise on that. My journalistic integrity is at stake, and I absolutely will not ask you to sign a non-disclosure agreement uh, in regards to my star rankings. Ah, that's a joke about the whole thing. There's going to be a whole show about that, so just wait for it, okay? Just wait for it. But we don't have to wait any longer for the first case. It looks like Judge Mills Lane has taken a stand, and so let's get into it. Now, we are a show that lives and dies by the evidence only, okay? But given our first match on the docket for today's show, it comes with all sorts of baggage. And I really wanted to give my, not only myself, but I also wanted to give the audience some context here, okay? Because a wise man once said, context is king. 
So, first match of the episode, the case of Hollywood, Hulk Hogan versus the Macho Man, Randy Savage, from Uncensored 1998, in a steel cage match, live from Mobile, Alabama. All right, it's Mobile, but damn it, it's called Mobile. And as a side note, what's up with us Americans calling cell phones cell phones? Mobile phones is so much cooler, especially when you're watching like a Bond movie or something, and somebody says, ah, Bond, I'll, I'll rig you on your mobile. And not only do they say mobile with a sweet multiple uh, addition, <laughs> mobile seems to have additional. Uh, what the fuck is the the thing where you you, you know you the syllables? Jesus fucking Christ! Would you believe I have a bachelor's degree in English from a major accredited university in this country, folks? That's a hashtag fact. So I'm talking about syllables, mobile, mobile. You know, that extra syllable and an English accent really goes far. But enough about this fucking backwater town in Alabama. Let's get to the context leading to the case. So like I said, it's Savage and Hogan. And a Savage and Hogan match comes with all sorts of baggage. Uh, What's the face-heel alignment? Does Elizabeth come into play? Uh, Are we dealing with, like, superhero versions of the characters? Well, it's a late 90s match, so we're probably dealing with some NWO shenanigans, okay? And as the match was getting started, like I said, this show tries the matches based on ring... It's ring-based evidence, folks. But Tony Schiavone provides us context that will not influence how I present the evidence, but it will give us the proper context in which to observe the evidence. So... As I do on WWE Must Die, I will now quote Tony Schiavone. <laughs> Lois, 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 unique New York. The human torch was denied a bank loan. All right, now that I have my Tony Schiavone voice down, let's get into the proceedings. And folks, I'm going to apologize. This is verbatim, and I think it's just one long sentence, but I digress. <clears throat> I want to keep hearing the term NWO for life. And obviously, what we have witnessed over the past few months has been a break apart, has been an unraveling, if you will, in the power struggle to control the new world order. It all has to do with egos. It all has to do with paranoia. The Macho Man claims that there are people who want to stab Hogan in the back in trying to control the new world order. But we have not seen that. There are, frankly, what we have seen is a guy like Sting and members of WCW helping and lending a hand to the Macho Man. Be that as it may, Mike, there's no question that Randy Savage is still a part of the NWO. And that is our storyline. Now, and again, I'll cover the entrances just, just for fun's sake, but it's not evidence. Hogan shaking the cage during his entrance is so fucking laughable. Uh, when we were doing the Cronoso Daily Project over on the North-South Connection Podcast Network, which you should absolutely like and follow, as a side note, uh, I covered, uh, well, it was it was set to be the, the very next match on the docket before the show got postponed, and it was the Hulk Hogan-Paul Orndorff steel cage match from Saturday night's main event, where Hogan also comes down to the ring as a 303-pound super-fucking-hero giant and shakes the blue cage, and by God, it certainly revs up a 1980s crowd, and it revved up a Johnny C who was reviewing the match as well. This is certainly not that. 
And this match is also the tale of two ring entrances, but one theme song. Because you know, you all know the end of the NWO song, where it's like, bah, 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 bah. the biggest, the biggest, the biggest, new, 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 new world order. And then it ends, right? So that happens, and Hogan's entrance is done, because Hogan comes out first. And then, all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it, the NWO song strikes up another play. And, and of course, it's the Savage variant that has things like, oh yeah, in it. But it's still the same theme song, and it's a very strange. Now, the Savage is getting the uh, superstar ring entrance from Michael Buffer. Buffer has this to say about Macho Man Randy Savage, which solves a mystery that's been in my brain since the year 2002. His goal in this match is to leave the cage with victory and the title Kingpin of the New World Order. So, this finally solves the case of why Mr. Savage had a clear-cut vendetta slash rivalry slash hatred for that no-good, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Uh-huh. Because apparently... Macho Man Randy Savage was the kingpin. The kingpin of crime. The man who leads the underbelly of New York City's criminal element. Can you possibly imagine the Macho Man Randy Savage as the kingpin doing battle with the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man? Or perhaps blind justice advocate Daredevil? Mm-hmm. Look here, Murdoch. Look me in the eyes when I'm talking to you. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Kingpin. I can't. I can't look you in the eyes. Uh-huh. You can't look me in the eyes, Devil Man, because you know justice is blind, and the Kingpin is not guilty. Uh-huh. But enough of this crazy multiverse world that I'm imagining we live in, because we live in the real world, and now our proceedings can begin because the bell does indeed ring. Now. Once the case is live, as it is now, I will be presenting the evidence. The evidence will either be positive evidence or negative evidence. And rather than saying, positive evidence, the macho man uh, slaps Hogan with his dick and it makes me laugh, I will try to use my vocal inflections to let you know if it's a positive or negative piece of evidence. For example, and here we go. One minute into the match, and Hulk Hogan has Savage down on the ring apron area with a boot choke. And this lasts for the entire first minute of the contest. Luckily, Hulk Hogan, Hollywood that is, transitions from choking with his boot to choking with his weight belt. This is to help keep the crowd engaged in the contest. Hogan, about another minute into the match, hits the big boot! Logistically speaking, the Macho Man Randy Savage is selling about 2 minutes and 30 seconds into this match as if he's in the final round of the WWF Heavyweight Championship Tournament from WrestleMania 4. He's had quite a night to get to this moment in the contest, and that must be why his stamina bar is so low. Hogan gets only a two-count with his big boot, but luckily the boot-based offense continues as we go back to the boot choke. Now, during this boot choke, he yells to a fan, Tell it to your mother! Which was humorous and did make me laugh. Now, the blood feud in this contest 
has evolved. It's evolved to include some slow boot stomps. At about the five minute mark, there has still not been any use of the steel cage uh, in an offensive way. It's been offensive, but there have been no offensive maneuvers that use the cage for momentum. But Savage does take control of the match with a rake to the eyes. Now, about six minutes into the match, uh, we get some cage blocks. And this is important to the overall narrative because Hogan finally goes to ram Savage's face into the cage. Savage blocks and then goes to do the same thing. And Hogan blocks and no one ends up, you know, going face first into the cage. So this tells us that part of the big narrative structure of this match will involve someone finally having to kiss the steel. And which one of these gladiators will make their opponent do that first? Now, that is a super elementary and easy thing to do in your storytelling, but when someone does finally kiss the cage, you know, to be a little silly about it, but, you know, it's going to be an important maneuver in the match, this should lead to a massive pop and a huge investment from the crowd. You know, especially if the babyface, whoever the fuck that is, gets in uh, the cage strike first. And speaking of Hughes, the ba- Hughes who the babyface is, we talked in our first episode about matches that either are booked as heel versus heel or maybe a triple threat where the only babyface competitor is on the outside for some time and the contest is heel versus heel. I've never really had an opinion or a stance on heel versus heel matches, but just judging from the couple episodes of Starman that I've put to paper, heel versus heel is a really hard thing to sell to an audience. So it is what it is. Now, when Savage gets control of the match and the weight belt that Hogan was using, he is legitimately whipping the shit out of Hulk Hogan, the wrestling character, and Hulk Hogan, the man. I think there's probably some years worth of pent-up frustration in these strikes, and it does get the crowd engaged. Now, about eight minutes into the match, the Macho Man Randy Savage throws Hulk Hogan into the cage quickly and without any build which of course leads to no fan reaction and absolutely destroys my theory for the narrative of the match. I just must not be as good as a sports entertainer as these two guys. So let's continue and see what they deliver. Now, a second cage cage ram from Savage uh, results in Hulk Hogan being dazed so the Macho Man can hit his classic stomp his foot rabbit punches, which might sound like a joke, but I do present that as positive evidence. Now... The Macho Man hits an elbow, he goes to hit a second elbow, and the announcers have to cover for Hulk Hogan because Hogan takes a back bump off of that second elbow long before it ever makes contact with his skull. Now, Hogan finally decides to do something and throws Savage violently over the top rope, and Randy Savage's back smacks up against the cage in a sickening way, and he's completely vertical from head to toe for about half of a second. And that's a pretty cool visual. And finally, someone has left their feet in this contest. Now, how does Hulk Hogan transition from this maneuver and keep the crowd engaged? Well, he goes back to the tired and true belt whip. Belt whip. Choke. Boot stomp. These were the matches. Or the, the moves, by the way. I, took, I made a list. Now, Hogan is clearly calling the spots on the Macho Man when he goes to get a a two-count. There's a lot of communication going on here. But I'm wondering if Hogan is indeed slipping Savage a blade. 
And I'm also wondering if Hogan is supposed to be busted open from those initial cage shots. But if he is, he's about negative .001 on the Muda scale. It's an embarrassment to bladers everywhere. Uh, Hogan does something different. He hits Randy Savage into the cage from the snake ice position. Eh, okay, that's fine. Follows up with the cheese grater spot. Eh, all right, that's fine. And now Savage is bleeding for our entertainment. I don't know how to provide that as evidence, positive or negative, folks. Because if you like bleeding, okay. But why bleed for this match? And the crowd still doesn't give a shit. And regardless of the fact that this 10-second cheese grater spot might make you be entertained for a moment, we just devolve back into punches and kicks and chokes, and that's one of the worst offenses of this match, which we'll get to in the verdict. Now, the referee opens the door because the Macho Man Randy Savage is laying on the ring apron close to the door. Tony Schiavone says on commentary, We may be seconds away from ending this match if he can escape! Hulk Hogan jumps down to the floor after walking through the door and pulls Randy Savage out so they can brawl on the outside during a cage match. Now, I can't technically hold Shivani's commentary against them, but I think it's clear to everyone involved, which I will talk about when I render the verdict, that clearly the steel cage rules and stipulations are just up in the air and no one's keeping score here, and I don't think anybody gives a fuck, which is the saddest part. You know, it's like, you're the main event of the evening. What are we going to do? Oh, I don't know, brother. We'll just call it in the ring and figure it out. And that's why you get choking with the boot for a minute and a half straight. Fucking assholes. <laughs> um, the crowd, though, for this brawling is absolutely dead. I mean, th- there's nothing to get these guys back, I feel like, at this point. And immediately after a couple of guardrail hits... Uh, They go back inside immediately. So what the fuck was the point? Now, there is an interesting spot where they do a double face ram into the cage. You know, where they like grab each other by the skull and they ram each other. Okay. Both guys end up on their backs. And then, in probably the coolest fucking thing in the match, uh, the Macho Man Randy Savage sits up like The Undertaker, goes to the corner and scales to the top of the cage and poses so he can hit an offensive maneuver. Okay. Now, I rewound this and did a count. From the second that Savage gets into the turnbuckle area uh, and gets to the top of the cage to pose, only three real-world seconds uh, have passed. So, maybe the Macho Man Randy Savage hates Spider-Man so much because he's stealing his gimmick. Savage scales this cage like it's nobody's fucking business and like it's easy-peasy lemon squeezy. Now, Savage jumps three-fourths across the ring and hits a double axe hammer. And it's cool visual, but it's just a double axe hammer. And it's too bad because, you know, that's all. I mean, the elbow's cool, but what else is he going to do off the top? It gets a near fall. uh, And then the Disciple is on my fucking TV screen. And this is early Disciple because they don't even have a name for him yet. They just call him this individual in the NWO vest. He beats up the referee and takes the keys. Now, back to a cool spot. Savage scales the cage again, and he's on top, and he's posing, trying to deliver the elbow to Hogan. And the Disciple just drags Hulk Hogan to the other side of the ring to safety. And Savage gets down after taunting the Disciple and acting like he's going to come off the top of the cage uh, and uh, deliver some offense to the Disciple. But I say he's on the top of the cage, folks. I mean, he's on top of the cage. He's holding on to the fucking cables that are holding it to the ceiling. So it's a cool-ass visual. 
It just doesn't gel with anything else in this fucking pathetic, annoying match. Oh, what happens next? Oh, yeah, you're not going to believe it. So Savage gets down from the top of the cage, and he's kind of circling the heels and clearly stalling for time. The camera goes wide, and Sting repels from the ceiling. It's Sting! Sting gets stuck halfway down. He wiggles a little bit, and thank God that momentum forces him down to the top of the cage. Sting collides with the top of the cage and actually stands on top of the cage to wiggle the rope to give it a little bit of, what is it, like, uh, give me some uh, slack? And then climbs down from the top of the cage gingerly and desperately tries to unhook the little grapple repel, the little repel lock thing, and is finally standing in the ring. And the heels are really afraid of the stinger. And hey, a positive piece of evidence, we're still in a legal contest here, because it's a steel cage match, and there sure as hell isn't going to be any disqualification, dude. Now, Sting stands in the center of the ring, and you guys know me, I'm not fucking bullshitting you here, because I fucking counted. He stands in the center of the ring for 46 seconds. During these 46 seconds, Hogan and the Disciple are in the corner, kind of acting like they're scared, but not moving really at all. So we've got two heels in the corner, not really moving around, and staying in the center of the ring, not moving at all, like he's goddamn Michael Myers. Savage is doing some weak taunts, kind of like putting his fingers in an upward motion, like, oh, what are you going to do? What's going to happen? Oh, oh, oh. At the 47-second mark, Randy Savage clotheslines Sting. He then hits a pile driver to Sting. He then exits the cage. An ad for Spring Stampede appears on the TV screen. And then, because uh, I'm watching it on my phone, uh, we fade to black and my phone ends up back at the Peacock landing page asking me what I would like to watch next. Oh no, 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 the podcast didn't feed, feed didn't just cut out. I just wanted to give you a real true-to-life experience of what I experienced when, when, when Ho- Savage walked out of the cage. So, what we have here, folks, is a steel cage blood-level grudge match between two icons that have decades of history, and Miss Elizabeth is even at ringside to play off of into the narrative. And these guys clearly sat down and decided, fuck it, we'll call it in the ring, brother. I just can't even. Now, in our first episode, we talked about matches that get negative rankings for like botches and they start to fall apart and they expose the business and that's an important part of being a negative star ranked match okay that's an easy way to earn it by exposing the business it's like watching fucking star wars and uh the ship flies into view and the millennium falcon flies in to rescue luke and leia and their strings attached to it okay you're exposing the business And we talked about wrestlers just honestly making mistakes and forgetting the fucking narrative structure of the match in the middle of it. And while that might be a little funny, it's embarrassing and it's a negative thing and it completely alienates your audience. It's like if the Red Skull suddenly starts helping Captain America defeat the Nazis for no reason. It just doesn't add up, people. And then we talked about, in regards to Mongo and Alex Wright... You know, stupid fuck-ups and botches 
that are entertaining at least to watch. And these matches are short and they're not billed as the main attraction. And it just is what it is. And it's a decent enough laughable experience for six minutes. It might not be a negative one and a half star match. It's certainly not a one star match. But, you know, whatever. It's not as egregious. It doesn't belong on a list of the worst of the worst of the worst. And uh, that match was our only match that was found not guilty in our first episode. Well, folks, we're not starting not guilty here. This match is absolutely, unequivocally, unfucking believably found guilty of being a negative one and a half star match. And honestly, it's it should be more because this is the most egregious of the sins, in my opinion. It didn't expose the business. It didn't forget the story because never fucking told a story. And it wasn't goofy bad. It was boring as fuck. And that's the worst thing, in my opinion, that you can be as a professional wrestling match. You know, on WCW Must Die, I laugh and I have a good time. But a four-minute hardcore match that ends in Vampiro spraying Terry Funk with gasoline is at least fucking funny. It's not boring. Because even if you're laughing with it or at it like you're watching Mystery Science Theater or something like that, you're still laughing. You're still engaged. Fuck this match Fuck it hard. Absolutely fucking guilty. Okay. And now, a word from our sponsors. Hey, yeah, we got sponsors here on the Aqua Cave now. Can you believe it? And I'm sorry for the commercials. I know. But you gotta pay the bills. And we'll be back right after this. Hey there, folks. Johnny C here. Now, I don't know about you, but in my life, things sure can get hectic sometimes. You know how it is. After the 9-to-5 daily grind, you come home to find a whole new workday has just begun. Carpools, lawn work, laundry, and in between all of that, who has time to make dinner for the youngins? Well, that's when I reach out to our newest sponsor here in the Aqua Cave, Nero's Pizza. Now, Nero's Pizza offers a large array of specialty pizzas that are sure to be crowd pleasers, like Pepperoni and Vicodin, The Poetry in Motion, or Sausage and Black Tar Heroin, The Charismatic Enigma. No time to chew that food, though? No problem, because Nero's offers a wide array of liquid dinners as well, like the 44-ounce Suicide Dive. That's 44 ounces of crystal clear vodka with just a pinch of ice on top. And with their on-time delivery guarantee, your order is always sure to arrive on time, no matter what toll it takes on the innocent pedestrians in your neighborhood. So when you're ready to put your hunger behind bars, call Nero's. That's 1-999-G-E-T-H-E-L-P. That's 1-99-G-E-T-H-E-L-P. And you know what, folks? You'll be glad that you did. Oh, hey, we're back. And you know, I'm sorry if I end up chewing in your ear. But this Nero's Pizza is just 
absolutely delicious. You know, I feel like you should drop whatever it is that you're doing, get into your car, and then drive of your own accord to the nearest Nero's location and definitely pick some up. But up next on today's docket, a very special encounter from a very special show. Let's move just a few weeks into the future. It's March 29th, and it's 1998. We're in the Fleet Center in Boston, Massachusetts for WrestleMania 14. Now, uh, the next negative one and a half stars on the old Meltzer list is indeed the Sunny Bowl. Or the Beyond the Mat title card invitational over-the-top battle royal. Or the 15-man tag team, or excuse me, the 15-team tag team battle royal from WrestleMania 14. Uh, I jokingly say what I say because uh, Sonny is involved and because this, uh, the opening shot of this match is actually where the uh, footage freezes in the film Beyond the Mat and then the title card, which is when it says Beyond the Mat, uh, comes into view. It's always stood out at me. I always remember that. I always remember how stoked I was as well when I figured out Beyond the Mat was actually playing at a local theater in my area when it first came out. That was a heck of a lot of fun. But before we can try this case, we need a little bit of context. Now, this is the first match on the show at WrestleMania 14. So not only um, is I think it going to be judged with a little bit of bias because it's on this list, but it's a WrestleMania opener for God's sakes. But I will try to best my best to keep that context away from it. But I do think it's somewhat of the underwritten match narrative. Uh, you can't help but realize that the match you're putting on is in front of you know a WrestleMania audience and not uh, my backyard, and you're going on first, not eleventh. Well, that, that would be the main event, so you're not going on like fourth, you're going on first. So you kind of need to keep that in mind as you're working on your match. Um, the opening video to this show is pretty well done. It has, you know, I always love the themes that they sort of invent for these shows. You know, some would say that this is not the WrestleMania of old, that we've traded the pageantry, the spectacle, the celebrity for... Crotch chops and beer and stuff. And the baddest, baddest, the baddest man. The baddest, the baddest, the baddest man on the planet. Oh, sorry, the feed just skipped. My apologies. But here's what's interesting about this opening video package and how it works with this opening match. So the very last shot of the opening package is, or the title card of WrestleMania 14 is like a hallway with 13, with 14 doors. And the thir- first 13 doors say like the Roman numeral of the WrestleMania show that they represent, and they have a still photo from that event. It's also hilarious to go through these things, and you can see, you know, are we in good terms with Hogan? Are we in bad terms with Hogan? And what have you. But the 14th door is busted open at the end. And as soon as that 14th door busts open, we are treated to a circle with some lights on it, with a piece of cardboard that has the WrestleMania 14 logo printed on it. Now look, I'm not hating. WrestleMania is WrestleMania. Even in the dark days, you know, coming towards the light, it was still WrestleMania, okay? But good lord, is it a contrast in then versus now. It's just, it's mind-boggling. It might be, like, they're, you know, they're... Lots of examples of this. Obviously, pick a WrestleMania in the, in, you know, in the lean years, if you will, new generation style. 
and compare it to pretty much any WrestleMania. But because WrestleMania 14 is uniquely positioned as a show that opens directly on the entranceway, like, not like it's in a wide shot and we're shooting off pyro. That's the entire frame. And we're doing that because the Nation of Domination song plays instantly and Kama Mustafa and Farouk come out to the ring. They're the 14th team to be introduced, which means between the lovely warning, this fucking broadcast is raw and for not distribution by you, and uh, the end of the package, they introduced all these teams. But it's a 15-team battle royal. Who is the mystery team? Well... It's LOD 2000, the return of the Legion of Doom. Now, kids, if you don't understand why they're called the Legion of Doom 2000, see, back in the day, it was cool to put 2000 after pretty much anything. You know, like uh, WrestleMania 2000, Godzilla 2000, yeah? uh, Windows 2000. So, you know, as you can see, it's the thing to do. Now, I have to give credit where credit is due. Future burden of the state well, actually, you know what? The future burden of the state is Tammy Sitch. That's an old WCW must die gag. But Tammy Sitch isn't here. Sonny is here. This is a reintroduction and a repackaging of LOD with a new look, some new wardrobe, uh, and a new manager. It's Sonny with a flaming brassiere and some dangly things covering her rear. And I think that rhymed. And I'm going to, something to knock on, allow it. Sorry, I had to knock before I said allow it. And I'll give her her due. She's really on fire here. And not just her brassiere. I'm talking about, like, her appearance, which I hate to say. But here's the thing. Here's the reason I bring it up. I give this woman so much shit on WCW Must Die that I feel like I owe her a make-do. And this is me giving her that make-do. So, Sonny, congratulations. Um, here's the thing. All right. Getting over the fact that the LOD 2000 is a new team and it's a new gimmick and they have a fresh coat of paint is fine. And so LOD is the only one that gets a real entrance and they get to pose in the ring and everything like that. But these guys take way too long to undress. It's just, it's awkward. However, I cannot hold this against them. This is the discovery period, the context period. The bell rings. So we are now in session. So, as I mentioned, that open, the opening shot of the match is pretty cool as piles of humanity enter the ring. And it's a nice visual because they, everybody finds a dance partner pretty quickly. And, I mean, it is something to see. And I mean that dearly. Uh, unfortunately, though, I can't see anything because it's just a fucking mass of jobber bodies to be polite about it. For goodness sakes... And, you know, this is, I think this is important to introduce into evidence because this is WrestleMania, and I know you want to get everybody on the card. But 15 teams, is this really necessary? One of the teams is Flash Funk and Steve Blackman. Now, nothing against those guys, but what the fuck? Makeshift Tag Team 101 here. It's just ridiculous. Now, if you listened to the first episode, which I absolutely hope you did, and if you didn't, you should go back, you know that uh, Kurgan the Interrogator... Uh, is making his second appearance here. And you also know, I just call him the Gator to save time. But the Gator is eliminated from the match, and we don't even see it. Now, the Gator is a, you know, seven-foot hyped guy. This should have at least been a big spot where everybody in the ring throws him out. You know, it could have at least gotten on camera. And that makes me realize that this match is not going to have important narrative beats. 
Um, and if they do try to include them, will we even be able to see them? Barry Windham runs down the aisle and enters the ring. And hey, he doesn't even go here. Uh, but, you know, he interferes in the match and throws, let's see here, Chains over the top rope. And Chains is Bradshaw's partner, which is kind of like whatever. And, you know, it's kind of like I, I don't really like tropes like this where someone is eliminated from a battle royal by someone who's not in it. Now, I realize there are no rules in a battle royal, so you can't necessarily do anything about disqualification or anything like that. But you cannot allow the elimination. And this becomes more egregious later. This is a, I guess this is a wholly unique scenario because it's a, someone who's not in the match uh, doing it, but whatever. I don't really know what to say. But it doesn't make logical sense, and that's why it's being introduced into evidence in this tone of voice. Uh, legendary podcast journalist Aaron George weeps because the Quebecers are eliminated. And that's a negative thing because the Quebecers are a fun team to watch, and they're gone already. Oh, and Jim Ross has to clarify on commentary to me, the viewer, uh, that the Gator wasn't eliminated from the match because I guess he's not even in the match. And it's been like three minutes since he was in there, and we're just now explaining his narrative inclusion. I guess he was here to eliminate Sniper and Recon, which I'm not trying to like make an, have an opinion about, but wow. I should be able to understand what's happening from your presentation. Now, I don't know if I can blame the guys in the ring for this or not, but it's just... <laughs> and we've seen multiple outside interlopers. So I'm starting to think this could be a potential storyline moving forward for this match. So, eh, eh, you know, I guess that's okay. The Godwins go after the Legion of Doom. Uh, there's a lot of history there. And, you know, perhaps that's what this uh, battle royal is going to tell the tale of. Maybe they get separated from fighting and they have to fight their way back to one another as the last two teams. That's not what happens. JR declares that Mark Henry is also in the ring illegally. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, they are really pushing this thing. But it's not a storyline wrinkle. He's not interfering. His partner was eliminated and just no one knew to told him to leave, to tell him to leave. Like the refs didn't fucking know. It's like, I don't know who his partner is. He doesn't know who his partner is. He doesn't know when he's supposed to be eliminated. It's just a cluster. And, and that's business exposing. That's why I wanted to mention that specifically. It is funny to me, but it's also kind of business exposing in a way. You, I, could, I could hear arguments, counselor, that that's the case. All right. Now, hey, we're down to only four teams at this point. Without anything too egregious in terms of like, you know, nobody broke anybody's leg on accident and, you know, nobody went under the bottom rope and said they were eliminated. So we're not lazy, I suppose. But the four teams left are the Legion of Doom 2000, the Godwins, the Harris Twins, and the new and approved caffeine-free Midnight Express 2000. Now, I can, I'm entering... I can't enter this into evidence, but when am I ever going to talk about this match again? I laughed so hard because <laughs> on commentary, Ross is like, there's new LD King. I, I can't get over it. New haircuts, animal and short tides. <laughs> and I'm just like, what a thing to put over. Um, Hawk decides it's time to uh, let everybody know that we're not on the level here because he goes for a Thez press and Henry Godwin decides to sell it by kind of like push it away and being like, eh. Maybe some other time. The Harris boys are eliminated. Okay. But then the Harris boys eliminate the Godwins. And I think this is an even more egregious version of the, the this trope. 
okay? Because the referees can see this clear as day because the ring is practically empty. And they know that the Godwins are eliminated because they're trying to get them out of, or excuse me, they know that the uh, the Harris boys are eliminated and they're trying to get them out of the ring. And it's like, you don't have to call the elimination on the Godwins. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, they threw Phineas over the top rope, but guess what? It doesn't count because you were already eliminated before this happened. There's no piece of the puzzle or narrative or story where the refs were like busy breaking up a fight and they didn't see it. So again, it's business exposing because it shows that the rules aren't really rules. There's no rules. And that's why I'm entering it into evidence. Um, it finally comes down to the Midnight Express and the Road Warriors. <laughs> no, it's not the Midnight Express and the Road Warriors. It's the uh, Midnight Express 2000 King and the LOD 2000 King. Um, the Godwins, like I said, were eliminated, but they say, bucket! And they hit LOD with what Jim Ross calls galvanized buckets. Now, this is a positive. Sonny tries to assist her team by trying to shoo the Godwins away, uh, specifically Phineas. And this also ties nicely into the, the narrative of 96 Sonny and her quest to rule the tag team division. Okay. And I can't ever enter this next bit into evidence. But at one point, Sonny twirls and her little, like, skirt frilly things fly in the wind and what have you. She kind of looks like Slave, Princess Leia, which, I mean, you know. So... Uh, this is this is the last thing I'm going to have to enter into evidence, and I'm going to have to get into the weeds a little bit, and for that I apologize, but I think it's worth it uh, if you so allow, Counselor. So, even though we're in a battle royal, the Legion of Doom is so fit in their ways, they only know how to work, what is it, North American tag style, or what the uh, what people call it, you know, uh, babyface in peril, hot tag, finish, Okay. Because after the bucket shot, Animal is outside the ring. And I can't even see on camera. They keep talking about animals having trouble getting back in the ring. I don't know if Cornette's messing with it, but they don't really make it clear uh, on camera. So I can't really ding the narrative for that. But the second Animal gets inside the ring, I am going to ding him for this, they just revert to hot tag. It's as if, even though Hawk was getting the shit kicked out of him, now that Animal's in with the hot tag, Hawk has recuperated. Uh, somebody put in a quarter and he got his health bar back. It's just it, tag team matches are guilty of this, but the fact that it's a battle royal makes it even more egregious. Okay, they eventually hit the foregone conclusion clotheslines and, and LOD two thousand wins. I mean, whatever. It, it this is just an excuse to get over the gimmick. That's literally the only reason this match even fucking exists. Uh, and now it seems that the jury has reached a verdict. Um, in the case. The 15-team tag team battle royal at WrestleMania 14 receiving a negative one and a half stars. We find the defendant not guilty, Your Honor, by the slimmest little fucking sliver of all time. And case dismissed. Now, I do find this not guilty, okay? And here's the reason why. If I give this a guilty verdict, I am saying that it is as bad as the opener that we discussed okay now that opener was guilty with like you know dishonorably discharged guilty i mean whatever way you want to fucking quantify it but Meltzer gave it the one and a half uh i can't 
I can't quantify that one and a half to this one and a half. I mean, it's a battle royal, so to me, battle royals are kind of neutral in neutral in general. It's kind of like how long is it? Is the star ranking? You know what I mean? If you're telling me there's a 25 person over the top battle royal and you're like it's only five minutes uh but all the eliminations are power spots i'm like we might be looking at the best battle royal of all time you know what i mean um depending on who's in it so this was not super long it's a shit opener for a wrestlemania but you know this wrestlemania wasn't like setting the world on fire it was again sort of like the clotheslines in this match it was a foregone conclusion but that shouldn't you know the event shouldn't weigh into the the verdict but you know, it was asked to be the opening match to get over uh, just the Legion of Doom's gimmick and that Sonny is with them. They weren't asked to get over, like, specific movesets or specific character traits. Um, and even though there was some egregiousness, it, it I can't find it guilty of that negative one and a half. It's guilty of, like, dud, sure, or, like, one, half, you know. And that's the margin we're sort of seeing so far. The same thing with the first not guilty match we had on the last episode. You know, it was not guilty, but that didn't make it good. But it certainly wasn't as bad as the others. And with that being said, it's time to pivot to the last case of the episode. Oh, I know. It's sad. It's sad. But, you know, there's more to come. And it's the most curious case we've ever tackled here on Starman. It's Monday Nitro. Still in 1998. In the future, though, it's June 1st. And we're in Washington, D.C. at the MCI Center. Nice arena. And we're here to try the case of the public enemy versus Raven and Saturn. A little bit of context here. It's decision night in America, 1998. And no, it wasn't a huge, big election. But apparently, this is the episode that revolves around Sting making his NWO color affiliation decision, red or black. Okay, that's not bad. Uh, it looked like the crowd was excited for it. I saw kids in the audience with their faces painted half uh, white and half red. Um, so no Roddy Pipers in the audience, thank God. But, you know, Sting in the Sting mask configuration, you know. So, uh, you know, it's 98 uh, WCW. It's a, it's a good time for them, all right? Now, there's not a whole ton of context or build into this match, um, but a great line here. I have no idea what the man is talking about, but when am I ever going to get to talk about Larry Zabisco again? I don't really do many shows that cover him. A commentary. I think he's talking about the NWO black and white, and he's like, the Titanic was also thought as the ship of dreams. <laughs> Out of context, Zabisco should be a Twitter handle if it's not already. Now, Raven and Saturn make their entrances, and they have the Riot Squad with them. And if you don't remember, that's Ruby Riot, Sarah Logan, and Liv Morgan. But this Riot Squad is a bunch of dudes dressed up like a Riot Squad, like they're from that video game, Revolution X! The weapon is you, or music is the weapon. What a weird game. Um, so they have, like, a guard, bodyguard army with them. And the announcers let us know that Raven and Saturn are back on the same page, and the flock was fired last week and i think i see a mulleted Zack snyder in the front row wearing a suit and that kind of lines up if you don't know who Zack snyder is google him the crowd is clearly into public enemies arms way thing which i guess is going to make them the faces in this match on commentary they indicate it's raven's rules and the bell rings so we are in session now right off the bat the narrative of this match is established early and clearly the bell rings and Raven is the legal man. He's decided to start for the team. He immediately tags out. 
Okay, Th that's fine. Nothing, whatever. Saturn works solid, works hard for about a minute and gets their team solidly on offense. And Raven tags in. You know, it's a mutual tagging. You know, Saturn goes for a tag and Raven tags in. Raven wimpily kicks the public enemy, whichever one it is, one time, immediately goes to the corner and forces Saturn to tag in. Uh, or, you know, like slaps, like taps him and tags him. And Saturn's kind of like, what is this? And this distraction allows public enemy to pretty much be on offense for the, you know, majority of this match. All right. Now, if, you know, a little bit seconds further into this match, Rocco Rock ducks a clothesline. He goes for an Asahi moonsault and his moonsault, excuse me, and his landing is rough. It's bad. And he kind of collapses on his right foot. However, Saturn immediately gets it back on track and seeing his character's enemy is down, launches a spinning heel kick right onto him and gets control for a moment. And the action is now in the flock corner and the public enemy is in control. Uh, I believe it's uh, Rocco Rock or Flyboy Johnny Grunge has Saturn in Raven's corner and he's punching him. And uh, Rocco Rock kind of taunts uh, Raven on the ring apron. And so Raven makes a blind tag by, you know, tapping Saturn on the shoulder. They go to the opposite turnbuckle, and there is a miscommunication spot where uh, Saturn is supposed to mule kick the public enemy in the groin. They're supposed to duck down and hold it, and Raven's clothesline that was meant for the public enemy is supposed to run into Saturn. But Raven winds up and starts running for the clothesline a little early, and the mule kick hasn't happened yet, and it, you know, it's there's definitely miscommunication okay but the botch is the botch kind of you know it hurts the narrative a little bit because it was supposed to be more up in the air as to whether as to whether raven hit saturn now if you're going with the botch as the correct storytelling element uh which made it look like raven definitely hit saturn that might not be the narrative that they're wanting to tell so i can understand that being a pretty big ding all right. Now, Raven and Saturn jaw jack with one another, but when they're threatened by Johnny Grunge, they work together and take control of the match. Uh, but then they get knocked outside by the other public enemy. Raven is on a table, and Rocco Rock flips over the top rope to land on him and break the table. Now, it's a pretty good-looking spot, but the table doesn't break. But that's not their fault. You know, it is what it is. It's part of it. What, what matters is how you adapt. And uh, Rocco Rock puts Raven back on the table and redoes the spot. But one of the table legs is broken and it doesn't look good. The table doesn't really break break like you'd want it to. And it, and it just really stands out that they redo that spot. Saturn hits a DVD on Grunge. He plays to the crowd. And Raven rolls in and steals the pin. And that's the end of the match. That's it. Now, if you're like me right now, you're like, what the fuck? But I triple-checked Meltzer's list, and this was the right match. And yeah, it was short. And there were the miscommunication botch, if you want to call it that. I mean, yeah, it could hurt the narrative. But, you know, I just... I mean, really? This match was very not long. And this match was very much a, a first-hour Nitro match of a three-hour telecast and right after this uh, i think raven and saturn had an interview with the flock i didn't watch it and it's continuing the narrative of their miscommunication and not being able to get along 
so I can't really ding him that hard for the for the spot where it looks like Raven did hit Saturn on purpose when it might be did he accidentally hit him is what they're going for. I just look the jury's reached a verdict. This is not guilty. This is. I mean, this felt standard. I guess that's, you know, maybe that's the reason why I don't find it egregious because, like I said, I specifically point out it's a night, it's a first hour Nitro match of a three hour broadcast. Like, and I watch a lot of 2000 WCW, so I might be skewed to thinking that this was okay. But, I mean, this was more, much more coherent than anything I think I've reviewed there. And I'm not, I'm not trying to use hyperbole. Like, I, I mean, I knew what was going on in this match. They established it right away. They used that match for every element of this match. Or, excuse me, they used that narrative decision. It informed almost every decision made in this match. This is the easiest not guilty. I mean, if it's under, like, five... I don't know. I, I, I just wonder if Dave was feeling okay when he reviewed this. I don't know. It's just such a strange thing to want to put into a, a column that's this harsh, a negative one and a half. Like, that seems like something very egregious should happen in that match. But these guys, as far as I'm concerned, uh, they can walk, and uh, they're probably going to be suing me for, um, oh, what is it, uh, th- in a civil way for, uh, you know, false accusation? That's what it is. Man, it's one of those days I couldn't even recall it. But with that false ac- accusation in the books, and two not guilty verdicts, I think that's going to put a close on the second episode of Starman. And I can't thank you enough for coming to join us. I hope that the uh, verdicts went the way that you were looking for. This journey is absolutely going to continue. We've got some more matches to go on the one and a half star area. But some nice folks coming up, some individuals we haven't seen yet, and just a bit of a warning. If you're following along at home, you already know this, but the next episode, we're going to have to cover some more 1998, specifically Judgment Day 1998. And if you know anything about bad matches and Judgment Day 98, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But until that inferno decides to ignite itself on your eardrums, come back and check out all the content we have here in the Aqua Cave. And make sure you join us next time on... Hey, hey, get over here. Laurinaitis, guess what? I'm a motherfucking star, man. Yeah, all right, let's do it. Yeah, oh, I like that tune. Yeah, let's go check with Legal. See if we can buy it. Ha, ha, ha.